Nuclear Hot Seat, what are those people thinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, what have those boys been drinking? Nuclear Hot Seat, the corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear Hot Seat, it's the bomb. Welcome to Nuclear Hot Seat, the weekly international news magazine keeping you up to date on all things anti-nuclear. My name is Libby Halevi. I'm the producer and host, as well as a survivor of the nuclear accident at Three Mile Island from just one mile away. So I know what can happen when the so-called nuclear experts get it wrong. This week, We examined the nuclear disinformation misinformation that went viral on the Internet over the holidays, dealing with the video of a radiation reading taken at a California beach and misinterpretation of the steam coming out from Unit 3 at Fukushima Daiichi. Radiation readings and explanations will come from Sean Bonner of SafeCast and Mimi Gurman of RadCast. They'll help untangle what went wrong and what we can do to avoid these problems in the future. Plus, we will have an update taken from a post by Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.org on the probable cause of the steam release at Fukushima. All of this coming up in just a few moments. Today is Tuesday, January 7, 2014, and here is the week's anti-nuclear news. Well, Japan seems to be specializing in secrets these days because Tokyo Shimbun just uncovered another one. The newspaper is reporting the results of their investigation into the dealings of the Fukushima Prefecture Government, the Medical University, and the International Atomic Energy Agency, another unholy alliance taking place here because Tokyo Shimbun has confirmed that these government entities did sign a secrecy agreement with the IAEA. Fukushima Medical University has been the main source of all public data on exposure and has been dictating what medical care many in the region were allowed to receive related to radiation issues. In a translation provided by Fukushima Voice, published on January 6th of 2014, it was discovered that the Memorandum of Cooperation between the IAEA and Fukushima, as well as Fukui Prefectures, contain a confidentiality clause. In Fukushima Prefecture, it was the prefectural government that entered into an agreement with the IAEA in the area of decontamination and radioactive waste management. Fukushima Medical University entered into an agreement with the IAEA in the area of the survey of radiological effect on human health. This parallels the IAEA's 1959 agreement with the World Health Organization to vet and control any information put out by the WHO regarding the impact of radiation on human health. In part, this agreement read, The parties will ensure the confidentiality of information classified by the other party as restricted or confidential. In other words, the IAEA is again in the international catbird seat when it comes to reporting of the impact of radiation on human life and safety. The agreement went on to say, If either the prefectures or IAEA decide to classify information for, quote, they contribute to worsening of the residents' anxiety, end quote, 
There's a possibility that such information as the accident information, as well as radiation measurement data and thyroid cancer data, may not be publicized. Note that the IAEA has published reports after the Chernobyl nuclear accident stating, quote, there were no health effects due to radiation exposure, end quote which is such an international bald-faced lie. I've got personal friends I can put in front of them who've had their thyroids removed and their kids impacted by the radiation from Chernobyl. Ruiko Muto, representative of Fukushima nuclear disaster plaintiffs, says the IAEA has a history of hiding information about health effects in Chernobyl. The same thing could happen to Fukushima. No, Mr. Muto. It's not that it could happen to Fukushima. It is already happening. TEPCO is setting itself up for a much better 2014 than it's had in any of the previous two and three quarter years because TEPCO is to be reorganized into two main sections, a power generation business and a separate division dedicated to decommissioning the Fukushima Daiichi site. The new arrangement would have supervision from the prime minister Shinzo Abe Baby, otherwise known as Pinocchio, and the cabinet via a decommissioning support organization. This not yet formed support organization would undoubtedly be staffed by a raft of pro-nukers, but they say it would create a structure where it may proactively use the expertise of both internal and external experts. Again, you can bet money it's going to be the pro-nukers. Input relevant to this will come from the International Research Institute for Nuclear Decommissioning, IRID. Ta-da! What did I just say? But you know, it's interesting how many times in this article they make reference to international input by outside experts. In other words, languaging is being co-opted that came directly from a letter to the United Nations from Helen Caldicott, Arnie Gunderson, and others, as well as the 150,000 signature petition that went to the United Nations from Harvey Wasserman and company that specifically demanded international supervision of this. So our languaging is being co-opted, and they're claiming international supervision But it's all the same players. Japan's government says that its objective is to reduce its involvement in TEPCO's overall operation and liberate the power generation business for a profitable future separate from the decommissioning task. In other words, they're splitting the company in half so that one half can still make money while the other one is destroying the country. Tra-la, tra-la. How can these people live with themselves? Of course, the government in Japan has lots of cooperation in establishing their smoke and mirrors. This was on the Harvard University website because scholars at Harvard interviewed local Fukushima official Yoshitomo Shigahara. This happened last April. He's a county commissioner in Nagadora, which is one of 20 wards within Iate. Shigahara claims that the media blindly reports radiation readings and other data provided by TEPCO engineers and that this information consistently under-reports radiation levels. Shigahara measures radiation levels on his brief trips inside the exclusion zone and says that the numbers he comes up with show that the media consistently under-reports radiation levels. He further said that reports differ wildly depending on which ministry is reporting. 
They can't even coordinate well enough to get their lies straight. More word on manipulations in Japan come from the BBC. They reported that the Sendai High Court acknowledges a danger of low-level radiation exposure, but the High Court says that there is no immediate risk to health. Note the word immediate in that sentence. It takes a while for radiation damage to show up unless you've had a catastrophic dose. So they're right in saying there's no immediate health risk, but that doesn't mean that there isn't a health risk. The court concludes that the only solution to the problem of exposure to radiation is to evacuate or relocate. Yes, that's right. But people need help to evacuate and relocate from contaminated areas. They need the help of the government, and the government has responsibility to help them. But is the government of Japan helping their Fukushima residents to relocate, especially the mothers and the children? Nope. The government is responsible for this forcible radiation exposure towards children now. People in contaminated areas are not responsible for this. But the court, the Sendai High Court, cannot recognize this point which makes the court very much a slave of the nation. And, of course, the impact on the people who are stuck behind, especially the children, is continuing to show up. Professor Toshihide Tsuda from Okayama University said, an incidence rate of thyroid cancer on children in Fukushima are from several times to dozens of times higher than usual. This is a rash of disease. There is possibility to increase more in the future, and we need a countermeasure. And, of course, the only initial countermeasure is get the hell out of Dodge, which they can't do. Meanwhile, on the first of this year, Mari Sato of Reuters said, there's a level of apathy in the Japanese public, I think, towards news about Fukushima, because it just keeps getting worse. That's right. Depression can take you out of the game. To which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, the only way out of depression is to fight back. Seismic activity around Japan is not good. On January 1st, the Japan Meteorological Agency announced that nine quakes hit the same area near Fukushima's border in just a few hours. They ranged in magnitude from 5.4 to 2.7. And in the seas south of Tokyo, lava from a volcano has made two new islands. Professor Kenji Nogami of Tokyo Institute of Technology says, The volcanic activity on the new islands has been considerable. Magma has been rising to the surface for a month now. We should pay close attention to the volcano and its eruptions. Pacific Ring of Fire, indeed. Nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, nuclear hot seed, none that's not awake. Kyoto News broke the word on January 6th that a computer at the offline Manju Experimental Nuclear Reactor Complex in central Japan was found to be infected with a virus, and data stored on it are likely to have leaked to the outsiders. This according to the reactor's operators. Everything nuclear leaks in Japan. The compromised computer is one of eight computers in the control room of the Fast Breeder Nuclear Complex, according to the Japan Atomic Energy Agency. 
That agency also said the leaked data do not include the content key to the security of nuclear substances, to which Nuclear Hot Seat adds, but it could. And that's what makes this, this week's Nuclear Hot Seat, none that's out a week. But you know, when it comes to nuclear, it's all numbnuts. Here in the United States, don't you just love how the Nuclear Regulatory Commission holds public hearings to reconfirm everything that they already believe without paying any attention to the input of the public? That's what just came down yet again when most members of the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, meaning four out of five, indicated on Monday that they considered it safe to continue storing most spent nuclear fuel in pools, even though concerns remain about potential accidents and terrorist attacks. Four of the five members indicated that storage in the pools was, quote-unquote, safe enough. Would someone please explain to me the technical explanation of safe enough? And as for the four of the five, it's the usual suspects. Svinicki, Magwood, Apostolakis, and Ostendorf. With the lone voice of reason, sanity, and maybe we should think about this a little more, coming from NRC Chair Allison in Wonderland McFarland. She's facing the same nuclear industry insider NRC cabal that her predecessor, Gregory Yasko, did. Unfortunately, it looks like she's having much the same results, which is none. Gordon R. Thompson, the executive director of the Institute for Resource and Security Studies in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and a research professor at Clark University in Worcester, Mass., told the commissioners it's legitimate to describe spent fuel pools at reactors in the United States as pre-emplaced radiological weapons. The spent fuel pools are a magnet for terrorists, he said. But, of course, David A. Heacock, a chief nuclear officer of Dominion Nuclear, which operates reactors in Virginia and elsewhere, said that the probability of an event that would damage a spent fuel pool was effectively zero, and that the steps needed to mitigate such an accident were simple, with preparations already made. Already made? This is what the guy said. This is not a complicated mitigation, nor is it difficult. It's basically just add water. Yuck, 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 yuck. Just like they're still doing at Fukushima all this time later with such wonderful results. But this guy is a shill for the industry. And would you really expect a nuclear millionaire to say anything less about his cash cow? Allison in Wonderland McFarland was the sole commissioner of the five whose questions indicated she might be open to moving more fuel to dry casks, which are already in wide use. Allison, one against four. It's business as usual at the NRC. After all, once they leave their office, they're going to be nuclear millionaires as well, and they've got to earn their money in advance. Here's a warning for activists in the western part of the United States. In June of 2013, New Scale Power LLC, all nuclear companies are LLCs, limited liability corporations, so that they can keep making money with one branch while the other one is melting down. New Scale announced the launch of the Western Initiative for Nuclear, 
Project WIN, Western Initiative for Nuclear, get it? They defined it as a broad, multi-Western state collaboration to study the demonstration and deployment of a multi-module, new-scale, small, modular reactor SMR plant in the Western United States. The first new-scale plant is projected to be developed, built, and owned by a consortium of regional utilities. So what has new-scale been up to since that announcement last June? The Western Governors Association annual meeting held in Park City, Utah, is where governors announced a 10-year energy strategy, which included, as one of its goals, finding ways to accelerate the introduction of SMRs into the commercial marketplace. Mm -mm -mm. What states do we have to worry about here? Well, there's Utah, with Governor Gary Herbert, who's hailing this as a good thing. Idaho's Governor C.L. Butch, Otter, Governor John Kitzhaber of Oregon, and Jan Brewer of Arizona. NewScale has signed teaming agreements with key utilities in the Western region, which include Energy Northwest in Washington State and the Utah Association of Municipal Power Systems. The preferred place for them putting that first little sucker into place is the Idaho National Laboratory site near the towns of Arco and Idaho Falls. So heads up, activists, if you're in that area, looks like you've got something else to work on. Just what you needed in case you were bored or had extra time on your hands. The Wall Street Journal reports that plutonium levels 1,000 times normal have been found on the seafloor 50 miles from San Francisco. It is the site of the Farallon Dump a major nuclear dump about 50 miles west of San Francisco in a globally significant ecosystem that supports abundant wildlife and valuable fisheries. An estimated 47,000 containers lie at the site. A 2010 report from the National Oceanographic and Atmospheric Administration called the waste site a potentially significant resource threat. Thomas Suchinek, the principal investigator and lead author of the 1991 study for the California Department of Public Health said recently, plutonium in underwater sediment at the dump site was up to around 1,000 times normal background levels. The study found americium, a radioactive decay product of plutonium, in some fish samples from the site, as well as in a comparison area about 60 miles away. A 2001 federal study of part of the Farallon dump site off San Francisco found indication of leakage from barrels. Insight into the growing food chain issues comes from Dr. Sheridan Ross, a medical doctor, a retired professor at University of California, Irvine, and a member of the board of directors at the Compton Community Organic Garden. Dr. Ross said, We've done a lot of things to make sure that our food supply has been safe. What we'd usually do is harvest a lot of seaweed for places such as the Central Valley, where a lot of our root crops and our lettuce come from. But because of the high concentration of radiation that's in the seaweed, we haven't been able to do that this year. We try to use the coast of California. Initially, we'd harvest tons of it because it's a renewable source. It's very good for sucking up radiation and stuff that's in the soil. That was our out. We do see radiation from Fukushima in the soils in Southern California, especially in our desert regions. 
We've also been seeing it in small amounts in a lot of the food sources that we give to our cattle and to our chickens. Remember, if any of that feed for cattle and chickens is sourced in Japan, they can legally export it to the United States, and it can be used here even if it is too radioactive to be used in Japan. Coming soon to a farmer's market near you, radioactive food cooks itself. Time to check in with the animals. There's lots of bad news, and while we cannot pinpoint Fukushima as the source, There certainly is an ever-escalating list of problems, rare, unprecedented problems, that are happening with animals in the ocean and all over the western United States. Conjoined gray whale calves have been discovered in the Baja California Lagoon. This could be the first time they have ever shown up. There were separate heads and separate tails, but the midpoint of the body was conjoined. They did not survive and most likely were miscarried. More than two dozen bald eagles and thousands of water birds have been found dead in Utah. The deaths are being blamed on West Nile virus, which is curious because that disease usually affects birds during warmer months when the mosquitoes that carry it are active. The total number of birds being talked about is on a grand scale that has not been seen before. And the Los Angeles Times on January 5th reported on the collapse of the sardine population in the Pacific Ocean. According to Captain Corbin Hansen of Southern California, after 12 hours and $1,000 worth of fuel, his boat returned to port without a single fish. Tonight's pretty reflective of how things have been going, he said. Not very well. If his crew catches sardines these days, they are larger, older fish, and largely absent are the small and valuable young fish. Scientists say the effects of this lack of sardines is probably radiating, love the choice of word, radiating throughout the ecosystem, starving brown pelicans, sea lions, and other predators that have been found dying up and down the coast of North America. Experts warn that the West Coast's marine animals, seabirds, and fishermen could suffer for years. They say that the reason for the drop is unclear. Scarcity of prey is the leading theory behind the 1,600 malnourished sea lion pups that washed up along the beaches from Santa Barbara to San Diego in early 2013. The question being, what is causing species collapse and these sudden deaths? Could radiation be creating a mutation in viruses to make them more virulent? Could it be that the fish have been concentrating radiation from plankton on up and now it's starting to hit birds and the sea mammals? If you read mysteries, you know. Always look for the odd factor, the thing that has changed, the piece that makes things different. And in a word, that would be Fukushima. In my humble opinion. In international news, More than 130 used cars from Japan were denied access to Russia last year as consumer watchdog agency Rospotrebnadzor remains concerned about the contaminated water leaks at Japan's crippled Fukushima nuclear power plant. Strict control of all cargo arriving from Japan will continue in 2014 as well. In 2013, Russia banned 165 batches of contaminated goods from entering the country. 
In addition to the 132 cars and spare parts for vehicles, there were 33 other cargoes. Deliveries of fish coming from Japan and those caught in the Pacific Ocean are also being monitored, according to the agency. Yet here in the United States, we ain't even checking. Good news for Ireland. They are free to sue British nuclear interests because changes have taken place in international law. British nuclear operators face being sued for billions of pounds by the Irish government and any Irish victims of radioactivity from nuclear reactors. Politicians and campaigners in Dublin have long complained about the impact, both historical and potential, of the UK's civil nuclear program close to its shores, with particular focus on the safety record of Sellafield, the Cumbria site. It is located less than 100 miles from Ireland's east coast. Greenpeace has long warned that the dumping of the reprocessing plant's liquid waste has made the Irish Sea among the most contaminated waters in the world, even though Ireland itself produces no nuclear energy. The changes will allow anyone in Ireland affected by a nuclear accident that originates at a British site to seek up to one billion pounds in damages from the plant's operator in the High Court. The Nuclear Decommissioning Authority, which owns 19 sites in the United Kingdom, in an amazing display of ignorance and insensitivity, said that accident cleanup costs are covered by insurance. LOL! Not even Lloyd's of London will insure a nuclear facility, and they're all the equivalent of limited liability corporations, so that the parent company gets to keep making money even if the nuclear branch has gone bust. Way to go, Irish anti-nuclear campaigners. And finally for the news this week, some dirt hidden in the fine print of an agreement between the United States and India to sell that country nuclear reactors. This exchange of technology and money was on the table for the September 27, 2013 meeting between Prime Minister Singh and President Obama. The deal was to buy nuclear power plants from American company Westinghouse for the state of Gujarat. But in order to go through with this, India's state-run power corporation, NPCIL, will have to accept all liability in case of any accident. This is the legacy that follows the cyanide gas leak tragedy in the town of Bhopal in 1984, this from a Union Carbide plant. India's laws say that the equipment seller will have to bear responsibility according to the Civil Liability for Nuclear Damage Act. But that's not the way the U.S. wants to do it. So the deal is in play now to tweak India's liability clause, shifting greater responsibility to the Indian partner, meaning the government, from the foreign seller, meaning the private corporation Westinghouse. They want all of the money and none of the responsibility. Boy, have they ever got this system tricked out. Okay, time for this week's interviews. If you tuned into the Internet over the holidays for nuclear news, you would have thought the sky was falling. Was it true that Fukushima Unit 3 was in a new meltdown? Was the U.S. being hammered by dangerous levels of radiation from Fukushima? Had the radioactive water in the ocean brought the scourge of sky-high radiation readings to the beach in California? 
These suppositions spread like wildfire and even triggered mainstream media reports and people started scarfing down potassium iodide. But what the heck was really going on? Regarding the radiation readings, I turned to two sources I trust. Sean Bonner is one of the founders of SafeCast, a global sensor network for collecting and sharing radiation measurements to empower people with data about their environments. He helped start the group only a week after Fukushima began and is one of our most reliable sources for information about radiation. We spoke on January 7, 2014. Sean Bonner, welcome back to Nuclear Hot Seat. Thanks for having me. First of all, just give us a brief rundown on what SafeCast is, how it came about, and what the work is that you do. Sure. So SafeCast is a volunteer organization that started uh, in the days right after the 311 meltdown in Fukushima. And we started as a reaction to the fact that there was no uh, radiation data available for the public in any way. And we decided that we were going to try to solve that situation. And so we created a platform both hardware and software, for people to collect radiation data and submit it to a group and have that reviewed and then and then combined and, and published out. And uh, over the last three years, we've expanded outside of radiation to other environmental factors, too, that, that people might want to know about. And we've published just shy of 15 million radiation data points. Wow. So how did you first become aware of this rather alarmist story that came out about radiation on the beaches in California? Probably the same way everybody else did. It got emailed to us and people started sending very, very sort of panicked emails saying, oh my gosh, have you seen this? What's going on? So I think that's pretty much how everybody saw it. Describe what you saw on the video. I saw someone walking around with an inspector, a Geiger counter, picking up some some elevated readings. And just to sort of something in these these are elevated but they're not alarming i mean these are uh, i think as i mentioned in our report these are the, the sort of levels that you would detect um, from a granite countertop that you might have in your kitchen or from you know some sort of rock rock formations so they're elevated certainly above above what's normal background but they're not incredibly alarming so we saw this guy walking around picking up these levels making claims that what he was detecting must be from Fukushima, but he didn't seem to to give any information as to why he was saying that. And then he was also making claims which were obviously incorrect, that it was the water that was radioactive, but when he walked to the water, the levels actually went down on his Geiger counter and making claims that the air and everything around was, was radioactive, but if it was the air, everything would be radioactive, not just this one area that he was walking through. So I, I knew that there were some problems with the, what he was saying initially, and that, that's sort of what sparked our concern. What was your response when you first became aware of the story? Well, our first response was, of course, to, to check it out. Anytime we hear about something, we, we want to know what's going on and try to, try to verify it right away. So um, we checked our own data and saw that we didn't have readings from the specific location that uh, that this video was made. And so what we did was first look to see if there was any other data out in the world about this area. And it turns out there was. There's quite a bit, in fact. Over the last 50 years, there's been countless papers written about naturally occurring radioactive materials up and down the west coast of the U.S. and, and Canada, that, that whole stretch, um, specifically radium-226 and thorium-232 are the main 
isotopes and, and radioactive matter that's found. And so we knew right away that there was to be expected some sort of radiation, but we didn't know what this guy had actually measured. So our next step, once we knew that, that there was supposed to be something there, was to actually go to the beach where he filmed that video, take soil samples, and then put them under a multi-channel analyzer to find out what was causing the radiation that was being detected. And what we found was radium and thorium, as we expected to find. And what we didn't find was cesium-137, which is what's coming out of Fukushima. It's my understanding that, depending on the source, radiation is not all the same, that it has a different signature based on what generated it. Is that accurate? That's correct. So everything, you know, as we know, everything in the world is radioactive. Some things are just much more radioactive than others. And when you look at the signatures of those particles, you can see exactly what the particle is, um, just like seeing what, what any kind of an atom or, or anything else is, right? So you can, you can find out what, what's causing that radiation. So when we took samples of the sand, we saw that it contained radium and thorium. Um, but like I said, the uh, main contamination that's spreading from Fukushima is cesium. So what's on the beach is not from Fukushima. You know, I don't have an inspector, um, so I haven't taken radiation readings, but I know a lot of people who do. What are some of the mistakes that people make and assumptions that they jump to if they are working with a radiation monitor? So I, I think that, that you hit the nail on the head there with, with this piece of it, and that's that's what the assumptions are. First of all, radiation is kind of a, a scary topic um, in a lot of ways because we can't see it, so it's not immediately apparent. Three or four years ago, we didn't even necessarily know how much radiation we were surrounded by at any given point because nobody was really paying attention um, to just general general sort of exposure levels. So the topic itself brings a lot of concern uh, right away. And so I think that the, the main mistake that people make is taking specific data that they're getting from a, de a device and making assumptions about that and, and sort of projecting onto that into in, something much more inflated. With SafeCast really doing the deep vetting of the information that's out there, it sounds like you're a resource for us to be able to rely upon. How might we do that the next time we catch one of these alarms before we go grabbing and chugging down the, the potassium iodide? Well, I think one of the most valuable things that, that we have to offer is an incredibly willing brain trust. Um, you know, we have a, a huge mailing list with a lot of incredibly smart and helpful people on it. We have a lot of very smart people on our team behind, behind the scenes who are, who are actively working on things. So I think that if something pops up that's concerning, the first place to look would be our mailing list or our Twitter feed because we, we sort of talk about those things before we make official releases on our website. Of course, you can check our website as well, which is safecast.org. But right away, I think the, to, to check those lists and to check Twitter, you'll, you'll see what we're, what we're thinking of you know, at any given moment. And if what you've found hasn't sort of got our attention, you can send it over and we'll, we'll look into it right away. When it comes to your counter-report on this particular incident, when did you get that out and how can people access it? So it, we posted it on our blog um, at safecast.org, and uh, we just posted that yesterday. So that's our main information we just put up on, on the web yesterday. 
though there's been a bit of discussion about it on our Twitter feed and, and on our mailing list for a little over the past week. And unfortunately, I don't think you're going to be getting the more than half million hits that that video, that alarmist video got on an initial posting. But uh, hopefully we will be able to spread that information. Thanks. <laughs> and if people wish to sign up for your Twitter feed or to go to your website, where would they go? On Twitter, we are at SafeCast. And uh, on, on the web, we are at SafeCast.org. Sean Bonner, thank you so much for all the work you've been doing since the earliest days of this disaster and for all the work you continue to do to help the rest of us stay sane. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. That was Sean Bonner of SafeCast. A link to the blog post he referenced will be up on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog, under episode 133. Next, I spoke with Mimi German of Radcast, who provides each week's Nuclear Hot Seat Radiation Weather Report. I've come to respect Mimi's sense of responsibility for vetting any information that Radcast provides, as well as her insights into the psychology that might be at work behind viral panic attacks over radiation. What is your take on the problems that have happened in the last few weeks about false readings and people's response to it and how we can stay grounded when dealing with information about radiation. My take on it is that what we're seeing right now, as far as radiation is concerned, is not much different than what we were seeing a few months ago. Uh, we have fluctuations. They're minor fluctuations. Yes, they exist. Um, and as we know, there's no safe level of even low radiation readings. So I'm not saying that low radiation readings are okay. What I am saying is that the fluctuations we're seeing are rare and they're few and far between. When we see them, we report them. But from what we've seen at RADCAST and what we've been talking about is that we're seeing nothing right now that should cause major alarm in people. The other piece of what I see is we're in a sociological experiment right now. And this is what happens when you put nuclear plants around the globe and they start to explode. People don't know the information that they need to know. People want people to be paying attention, so they create drama in order to make that happen. And that is what's happening right now. We have a few bloggers uh, very few, but they know what they're doing. Their mission is to create panic so that people start paying attention. And the way to do that is to tell people that we're seeing extremely high readings, not explain what we're really seeing and what it's coming from if we are seeing high readings, whether it's a natural occurrence. And sure, maybe it's enhanced a little bit, by a man-made experience. For instance, in California, we were hearing readings that came out, they were posted at 500 counts per minute. Well, the reality of that reading itself, just the reading, was that it was more, it was closer to um, the lower 200s in the reading, which is notable. And the person who put that out, put it out as 500 counts per minute. And it was never at 500 counts per minute. What that did was it started a wildfire of incredible tension, 
mental anguish, confusion in people around the globe. And it really is around the globe. People are paying attention to what we're doing over here, we collectively, with our radiation readings. And things get passed around. I know. It went into the echo chamber and really people were running around going, the sky is falling, the sky is falling, without bothering to source back. My first awareness was when I was on the Coalition Against Nukes Facebook page. I caught all these posts about people saying, I'm taking my potassium iodide already. And I just posted saying, why? Because it was obvious something was happening. And when I started poking around, I knew it didn't seem credible. And then, of course... Everything blew up after that. You should pardon the expression. And we're finally getting back down to basics, but not after a lot of adrenaline, a lot of false information, and the kind of false information that can discredit us as a movement. The issue of discrediting what it is we're doing is something that I've always thought was a uh, non-starter for me. People are always going to try to discredit anything that isn't quote unquote either from the government or quote unquote real real science and i've heard that for decades what i know is that when we look at good meters geiger counters we can tell from those what it is that that geiger counter is reading and we can trust what that geiger counter is is saying to us You can't discredit what the Geiger counter is saying unless the person using the Geiger counter, for instance, hasn't had it recalibrated, which should happen every year. So for those of you with meters, take note. But people really are just starting to buy meters. So that's really not much of a problem, I I think. The issue with discrediting back to that is people, for some reason, have to create their own method of denying what is truly happening to them and their reality on this planet. It's been going on for I I don't know how long. So I don't really play along with that. I almost don't care because I'm going to continue doing what I do anyway, and I'm going to continue talking with citizens about getting meters. When we have more meters, credible meters, and more people learning how to use those meters, it will be more difficult for those around us to discredit what it is we're seeing. We're seeing numbers. We're seeing numbers on good meters. The numbers are the numbers. There's nothing to discredit about that. But we can't tell a full picture about anything when we have so few meters as we do now across the United States. Right now in the U.S. today, we have, from the meters that we have, the numbers that we can ascertain, We have a count per minute average of about 34 across the U.S. That's relatively low. Nothing to worry about as far as the panic state is concerned. Is it higher than it was a year ago and before 311? Yes. Uh, Is it higher due to climate change? Probably. Is it higher due to different accidents, including um, nuclear accidents and fracking? Probably, but we can't tell more than that when we have such a few amount of meters. This is our problem. So we can ascertain that states like Colorado and Arizona, from what we can see, are definitely higher than they were, and they're hitting higher highs. Does that have anything to do with altitude? 
No, because what we're seeing, we're looking at averages. We know what the normal backgrounds are for Colorado and Arizona. When you know what the normal background is to an area, you're already factoring in the altitude. When you see those averages go up or, you know, they're not going to go below the background that you find. So that's your baseline. Let's say the average in Colorado is 52. You've already factored in for the most part, definitely elevation, the uranium, the, you know, everything natural that is occurring in that state or in that area, in that city, in that town. From there, when those numbers go up, they are attributed to something else. It is radiation coming from something. Maybe there's mining, again, fracking, fallout, whatever it is, but it's radiation and we know that they're higher. So Mimi, how can we gain clarity about what we are seeing in the numbers? Well, the first thing is we have to have a source where we have data from a library of the past. And RADCAST right now is working on that library as far back as we can get. And we will have that on the map that you've heard about, and it's actually multiple maps, but we will have access to all of the past radiation we can gather in one place. When you can take a look in a library of data, you know where we've been and you know where we are. That is called perspective. You also know on a daily basis when the RADCAST reports are coming out or you're taking a look at the maps and you're seeing averages, not minute-to-minute counts, you're seeing averages, you also gain perspective. When you take those averages and you say, hmm, I wonder why it's going up like that, you can look at a multiple factor of things. You can look at, well, let's see if there's a nuclear power plant nearby? Is there an event that's going on? And you can go from there to the NRC data and see if an event was listed. Any event. You can check and see if there's mining. Was there fracking? Was there a big oil fire, refinery, anything like this? You start to create in your mind the picture of why might this be going up and you get to the jet stream. What's the weather doing? Is the snow falling? Let's look at the weather pattern over the ocean from Asia. Is this coming in from Japan? And you look at more of the picture and you say, this is in one area that I'm seeing this number higher. Is Are there other areas? Are there other sites on this map which are higher in relation to this one? Not across the country, but right here. And all of that leads to perspective. What we've been missing in the last few weeks is perspective. Perspective is key. It helps us to understand the reality of the day, the reality of the time we're living in. And it also helps us to not delve into a world of panic. The reason that the government, I believe, the reason that the government isn't sharing their information with us is that they think that humans will panic at hearing that we have a crisis with radiation from Fukushima. And we do have a crisis from the radiation falling on us and in Japan from Fukushima. It's very true. But if the government would talk to us and not lie to us, if they did speak to us, and tell us what we need to know, we can at that point use our intellectual capacity to make decisions about where we want to live, what we want to do, what we want to eat, get the information that we need from meters regarding food, the spectrometers that are out there, what's in our food, what should we be avoiding. 
And again, all of that comes back to perspective. And we don't have much perspective right now. And the interesting thing to me is that while the government isn't telling us anything about what's going on, people are telling us things and they are creating the very drama, the exact drama that the government knew would happen if they told us anything, even if it were true. So we have to be careful. We have to say, as humans, let's not be the lowest we can be. Let's be the highest we can be. Let's aspire to understand our surroundings for once. Let's understand that, you know, when we keep our lights on, when we use too much fuel, when we do all of this, we are contributing in a negative way to the environment. Let's look at our actions. Let's take a stand to become the better human being that we can become rather than the least good. I am asking everybody to take a deep breath. Know your sources. Trust your sources. Stop listening to the rumor mill. Go to places like Radcast. Go to places like Fairwinds. I know you've probably heard that everybody lies. Well, if everybody lies, there's no point in waking up in the morning, is there? So trust someone. And when we tell you that you can trust these people, what what else do you have? Where are you going to go? That was Mimi Gurman of Radcast. Finally, a lot of fear was generated online by a report posted by Turner News Network, which in a very short time has generated quite a name for itself. Not a good one. It claimed in the most exclamation-pointed prose imaginable that Unit 3 of Fukushima had gone into another meltdown, radiation levels were sky-high in the United States, and we were all going to die. People started chowing down potassium iodide, trying to figure out where to relocate to, embracing their loved ones, and trying to finish off their bucket lists before they, well, hit the bucket. Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.org has provided a refreshingly grounded approach to this piece of information. Arnie, as you may know, is a nuclear engineer and industry whistleblower who regularly explains complex engineering problems in terms that even I can understand. In response to repeated queries about the status of Unit 3, here's part of what he posted at Fairwinds.org. The Internet has been flooded with conjecture, claiming that Fukushima Daiichi Unit 3 is ready to explode. Fairwind's energy education has been inundated with questions about the very visible steam emanating from Unit 3. Hot water vapor has been released daily by each of the four Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plants since the accident. We believe that is one of the reasons TEPCO placed covers over Daiichi 4 and 1. Radioactive rubble, meaning fission products, were left in each unit, and heat from this ongoing decay of radioactive rubble is constantly releasing moisture in the form of steam and radioactive products into the environment. Unit 3 is still producing slightly less than 1 million watts of decay heat, that's 1 megawatt of decay heat, and that is creating radioactive steam. Hot radioactive releases have been occurring for the entire 33 months since the accident began. The difference now is that the only time we visibly notice these ongoing releases is on the cold days. In other words, it's like seeing the steam coming out of your mouth when it's below freezing outside. Arnie concludes, 
If this explanation is correct, there is no reason to expect any catastrophic outcome. However, the steam is carrying considerable amounts of radiation into the atmosphere and represents an ongoing radiation hazard. So the sky is not falling, but that doesn't mean that we're safe. There will be a link to Arnie Gunderson's full article on our website, nuclearhotseat.com slash blog. We'll have the Radcast Radiation Weather Report in just a moment, but first, Nuclear Hot Seat needs your donations to keep us going, growing, and improving. If you have come to rely on the news, interviews, numbnuts of the week, and all the rest, you can help me keep bringing them to you. There's a big red donate button on our homepage, so I ask that you use it. Whatever you can do to help, know that it's appreciated. This is Mimi Gurman for the Radcast Report, radically relevant and the first of its kind. Today is Tuesday, January 7th, 2014. We've been seeing readings vary with the weather over the past few days. We saw a few plumes last week coming through the United States and yesterday. There was a plume yesterday in South Dakota and one in San Leandro, California, which is still happening today. We'll talk about California in a moment. New Jersey also had high readings a few days ago, but we aren't sure if it was due to a meter malfunction or radiation. These are important pieces of the puzzle to know, so I state that for you in the RADCAST report. Regarding South Dakota, are the higher readings in South Dakota from the fracking sites in North Dakota? We aren't sure, but there is a possibility. San Leandro, California has something going on. There is a definitive event occurring. We don't know what that event is. We only look at the numbers. The current average in California and San Leandro is 48 CPM, but yesterday it was in the 60s. The max today is 78, while yesterday was 95. The normal background radiation at this point for the San Leandro area would be in the low to mid 30 CPM counts. A 20 CPM difference is large. What is causing it? We don't know. All we know is the number. There's a fluctuation, and we are watching this. At RADCAST, we're wondering now about the specs on the Mazer PRM 9000 and the new Inspector EXP. We are seeing different readings coming through these meters, and we're wondering if there's an issue with the specs on those. We will be doing further research, and we'll let you know. While readings fluctuate slightly on a daily basis, we are still seeing higher readings than usual in Colorado, Arizona, South Dakota, and in parts of California. San Leandro, California, yesterday had an average of 38. Today's is 71 with a high of 105. In Colorado, Colorado Springs, today's average is 62 with a high of 92. Lakewood, Colorado, today is 62 with a high of 82. Taos, New Mexico has an average of 71. Chandler, Arizona is at 48 with a high of 75. Chino Valley, 54 with a high of 79. And Tucson is at 50 with a high of 79. Thank you for listening to Nuclear Hot Seat and to the Radcast Report. This is Mimi Gurman for Radcast.org. Thanks, Mimi. Activist shout-outs. On January 28th of this year, three nonviolent protesters against nuclear weapons, the 84-year-old Sister Megan Rice, who is a Buddhist nun, Michael Wally and Gregory Borchia Obed, 
are scheduled to be sentenced in U.S. District Court in Knoxville, Tennessee, for the supposed crime of sabotage against the Oak Ridge Complex for a nonviolent protest against nuclear weapons. There is a petition available now. We'll have a link on our website. Please sign it, forward it, get it out. These people do not deserve to go to jail, and they are facing 30 years for nonviolent protest of the nuclear military industrial complex. Please help. And here's one for me. My book is now going through the final formatting for ebook release. It's entitled My Very Personal Nuclear Reaction, One Mile from Three Mile Island to Fukushima and Beyond. The intention is to launch in January, the sooner the better, and the print-on-demand version will follow hopefully before the March 28th anniversary of Three Mile Island, 35 years since it happened. I will be posting a free excerpt from the book on NuclearHotSeat.com. I just have to learn how to do that. I'll let you know when it's available. Which leads to today's final thought. Nuclear disaster anniversaries are coming up. March 11, of course, is the third anniversary of Fukushima. But only 17 days later, on March 28th, It is the 35th anniversary of the Three Mile Island nuclear accident. Then on April 26th, it's the 28th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear disaster. It's easy to segment these and think of them one at a time. What that tends to do is skip over Three Mile Island, which I take personally, and it only gives a little lip service to Chernobyl these days. I have another suggestion. Let's consider them a unit, a kind of... Nuclear Disaster Anniversary Alley, and link them in our thinking and our actions. By dealing with them as a three-part unit of domestic nuclear threat, we can make a stronger statement. We can plan actions that span a 46-day period with a unified logo, slogans, weekly actions. Go get creative about it. Knock yourself out. When we separate these events into one-by-one-by-one, We're playing the game of the nuclear industry that insists that there's no connection between these events. Here's our chance to make people aware of a pattern of nuclear dangers. Don't wait to the last minute to make this happen. Let's make plans now, and let's execute it. This has been Nuclear Hot Seat for Tuesday, January 7, 2014. Material for this week's program has been researched and compiled from enenews.com, arniegundersonandfairwinds.org, New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Los Angeles Times, Boston Public Health Commission, Dianukes.org, Japan Meteorological Society, BBC, Tokyo Shimbun, Fukuleaks.org, Harvard University website, Kyoto News, GrindTV.com, World Nuclear News, and the Nuclear Hot Seat Facebook community. Theme music written by me, sung by Marilee Weaver. Our archive is available on iTunes or at NuclearHotSeat.com slash blog. All comments welcome, just keep them civil. Nuclear Hot Seat is the activist voice on nuclear issues, so if you have a story lead, a hot tip, or a suggestion of someone to interview, send an email to info at nuclearhotseat.com. Copyright 2014, Libby Halevi and Hartistry Communications. All rights reserved, but fair use allowed. You can reuse this material as long as you provide proper attribution to the program, the website, and me. This is Libby Halevi of Hartistry Communications, the heart of the art of communicating, Reminding you that San Onofre is still shut down forever, and we've all had our nuclear wake-up call. Now, don't go back to sleep, because we are all in the nuclear hot seat.
nuclear hot seat. What are those people thinking? Nuclear hot seat. What have those boys been drinking? Nuclear hot seat. The corium is sinking. Our time to act is shrinking, but our activists are linking. Nuclear hot seat. It's the bomb.